Tune in and listen up. It's time for Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a company founded in 2001. People G2 is dedicated to helping clients with their people-related decisions by giving them access to the best human capital, due diligence and background checks on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. In fact, People G2 was recently named one of the best places to work by the Orange County Business Journal. And just today, that they're on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies. The Inc. 5000, just today. To learn more about People G2, please visit them online at www.peopleg2.com. You can also follow People G2 on Facebook, and their Twitter handle is at PeopleG2. And now with us today, the founder and president of the organization, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Thanks, Paul. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. My name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. In case you're tuning in for the first time, the Talent Talk radio show features a wide range of guests who care about talent. On this show, we talk about talent in two ways. First, as it relates to success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people, like my guests today. And second, we talk about talent in relation to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates today. Hopefully you see how that works. The word talent here has a couple different meanings in the business world, and this show will focus and explore those two areas. My guests include CEOs, entrepreneurs, and HR executives from all different types of industries. And when I'm out at networking events and industry conferences, I have the privilege of meeting inspiring leaders all the time. And I created this forum to allow you to listen in on our dialogue and learn something special and really some practical advice that will hopefully impact your own career in a positive way. Before I get to my uh, first guest today, Mike Munch, I want to thank all of those of you who are tuning in live today. Don't forget you can submit your questions for my guests via Twitter by tweeting your questions to at peopleg2, hashtag talent talk. My producer, Mike, uh, will feed me the best questions and we'll try to get them into the show. Don't forget you can listen to this show via podcast on iTunes as well as subscribe and have a weekly show sent to you. If you're already listening on the podcast, thank you. With that said, let's get today's show started. Again, my uh, guests today are as Mike Munch, and on the second uh, half of the show, we will have Mike Vo in to talk to us. Well, Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Chris. So tell us about yourself and some of the great companies that you've worked for. I've had the fortunate privilege of working for a number of great companies in my career. When I started, I had the opportunity to work at IBM, and that was the first company that I worked for out of college. A great experience working there. Blue chip company. I was in sales there, so great opportunity to learn how to work with large Fortune 500 customers. Just really work at a, at a world-class company. I worked there for a number of years and uh, had a number of exciting and interesting jobs uh, selling to data processing equipment, large mainframe computers, and selling those products to a couple different types of industries. The entertainment industry was one of my customers early on. Also had a chance to sell to some of the service bureaus. So it was a really great place at a time in the uh, information industry where a company like IBM would really invest in new people coming into the company and train you and really take the time to make sure uh, you're well prepared to deal with uh, types of customers that you were going to be working with. After uh, leaving IBM, I took a couple years off and went back and got my uh, business school degree. And then from there, I went to Apple Computer. So had the opportunity to go from a company that was really focused on selling to the Fortune 500 
and sort of the enterprise type of selling to a company that was really an up-and-coming technology company that we all knew Apple back then, selling the Macintosh and some of those uh, types of products. And I actually had a career there that spanned about 13 years. And during that time, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of great people. I had a lot of great mentors during that time. Really got a chance to be a part of an exciting time at Apple. Worked in a number of their uh, different areas. And then um, from Apple, I had the really unique opportunity to go and work for a company called Line 6. And Line 6 was really, uh, for me, the, an intersection between one of the things I'm really passionate about, which is playing music. I've always been a musician, and that's always been an important part of my life, coupled with technology, where we were making products that were taking advantage of the whole analog to digital change that was taking place in the industry. We got some venture capital backing, and uh, I was able to join that company very early on. We managed to grow to be one of the more successful companies in the music instrument space. And so I did that for about the last 14 years. Well, being a musician is something we have in common, and Line 6 being one of my favorite companies, you, know, you did a remarkable job in transforming that company over time, especially kind of going from its early phases into really music kind of got taken over by the whole digital age. So you know, how did you handle that? How, how did you make that happen so successfully? Well, I have to say that our, our success really began even before I joined the company. Um, you know, the founders of the company at Line 6 were people who had really been a part of the analog-to-digital revolution in a number of other product categories before the guitar category, which is where Line 6 is most well-known. So we had a lot of DNA in the company already that understood the power of this analog-to-digital conversion that was going on. This was really an opportunity to bring it to one of the largest market segments in the MI space, which was the guitar segment. It was really just an exciting opportunity to grow, but we really did it by starting with a real strong understanding of what digital can do and then you know, sort of innovating with that in the guitar space. Guitar amplifiers are something that really, prior to companies like Line 6, really the technology for a guitar amplifier hadn't changed much in you know, 20 or 30 years. It was still basically a device that was a tube-based amplifier, and it, you know, when it got turned up really loud, it distorted, and that's exactly what guitar players wanted it to do. Right. We, we figured out with our technology how to be able to sort of recreate the distortion in those amplifiers, the tone of those amplifiers, and do it digitally. And really that basic intellectual property served as the a foundation for many of the products that we came out with in the subsequent years. At home, I have a one amp that modulates a couple hundred, right. you know, along with uh, the rest of the Dream Rig that uh, from that Line Six has that I, that I love to play. Yeah. So, I think a lot of people would be envious to have, or would really want to have, the type of work history you've you've had with IBM, with Apple, with Line Six. So, how did those unique experiences, being with those types of really name brand companies, innovative companies, how did they impact you in in the type of leader you are today? Well, I think it's a real interesting contrast because if I look at a company like IBM and again I'm thinking of the the period that I was there it was a time when the company was a very formalized company there was a lot of structure mm -hmm. to things everybody who was promoted into different jobs they all did the same jobs you know before that so first year of this and then year of that and everybody kind of follows the same path very um, formalized, um, somewhat regimented way of getting your work experiences, 
pretty common set of experiences everybody would have within the company, which was a very big contrast to going then to Apple, where instead of it being very formalized, it was actually very informal. So you would find that you know there were pretty frequent reorganizations of groups and divisions and managers and and I really got to see the difference you know in one case a very structured and formalized way and I could sort of see the benefits of that but I could also see some of the downsides from it as mm-hmm. well you know things get really regimented and on the flip side at Apple it was almost you know at times organized chaos and so really when I went to line 6 I was coming out of a pool of sort of both of those two ends of the spectrum, and really tried to combine the best of both of those things. So rigidness in terms of being able to put some process into place, because you really need to have some process in place if you're going to successfully grow a company, but yet not being so um, stuck on that process that you don't have the ability to innovate, because the creativity and those kinds of things that you find that can sometimes be that great idea that's going to be that great new product or that great marketing program doesn't come out of the rigidness and the structure. It often comes out of some of the the free form. So really I felt like the culture we created at Line 6 was sort of a mix of both some of the process and hierarchy you need to run a successful company and grow a successful company, but we were musicians. And so we had to do it in an environment where you could still um, have fun you, in an environment where people could be creative and, frankly, in an environment where you didn't necessarily have all the shared experiences that you might have had in a big company like an IBM. So you have the sort of that rigidness and maybe formality of IBM, and you have the more, I love that term, uh, organized chaos in Apple. So and you come into a company where you said it was venture-backed and you really came in early on and, and then grew it. Right. I can imagine you were taking what you knew and came in with one maybe set of, of leadership skills and abilities, and maybe over time you changed. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe talk about what you became, what were what was sort of the end result of, of the ideal leader within that organization? Well, it's always a challenge when you go into a young company to sort of figure out how much, as a leader, you want to sort of let people make their own mistakes and let them do their own thing versus imposing your own will and personality on the organization. And maybe because I saw, particularly at Apple, the power of personalities. And at the time in technology, you know, you heard about companies like Microsoft with Bill Gates and Oracle with Larry Ellison and, you know, sort of the what I call the the, the cult of personality right. that were really driving companies. And so when you go in and now you're saying, well, now I'm the one who's responsible for shaping culture. And when I say me, I mean, I, I really have to say I, what I mean is really the management team of the company because, as you know, Chris, it's not just a it's not just a one-person show. You know, it sort of is how are we going to create an environment where, on the one hand, you can get things done, but yet, on the other hand, you don't, build the company around a personality, myself or others in the in the company. And so it was really about trying to strike that balance between those two was one of the first things that we had to that I had to sort of wrestle with in terms of my own style. As I grew as a leader, it was more getting used to frankly not so much letting other people do their things because that was more how I was oriented. It was actually more learning when as a leader it's 
more expeditious to insert yourself into the process and make a decision so that you can move on rather than letting the sort of creative process and the consensus slow down the decision-making that you have to make. So sometimes, you know, letting an idea build a little bit, letting it sort of germinate, let it kind of cook before you're ready to do something is Mm -hmm. good. But in a startup situation, you don't often have that luxury to be Mm -hmm. able to have all that time, and you have to kind of jump in. And so I'd say one of the things that I had to, to develop was sort of the instinct to know when do you sort of jump in and say, let's bring this to an end and make a decision and move on versus allowing others to make those decisions for you. So definitely, for me, had to evolve uh, in that area quite a bit. So it seems like there's a lot of passion and and, uh, energy behind the work that you did at Line 6, partly for the company, the people around you, and also, I think, what you were doing with with the music part as well. So how much do you think that plays into the success of people, really loving what they do, enjoying what they do, or being passionate about what the company's doing obviously it's critical when you can get it you know i think i think it's a luxury frankly in some cases to be able to do it and i really feel fortunate for me that i had the opportunity to work in an environment where i was also passionate about the space that that we were in and i think a lot of people that is if i look at the people that i worked with many of them shared the same passion as i did whether they were music aficionados who didn't actually play an instrument or in some cases we had people in the company who had been on tour with major you know major worldwide acts and and played forums around the world and you know everything in between and what we all shared in in that case was you know just a real passion and love for music creation performing music and creating music so i think that having that is a definite advantage both in terms of the motivation to go to work, also in terms of a great connection with your customer, since our customer was uh, and is musicians, having that connection is great. And that was probably the people very early on that were the core of the company, were those kinds of people. But as we grew, you know, I also found that there were people who were very passionate about being great at what they do. So you might find somebody who's in logistics can get just as passionate about really finding the best way to optimize your supply chain and getting excited about that in the Mm -hmm. same way as a guitar player might be getting excited about a new amp that we're creating. And so what I think I I would see would be that passion can be for your space, but passion can also be for what it is, you know, you functionally that you're doing. And I don't think one is any better or worse for the company than the other, but I think having that passion to either be great at your job, to be great functionally, to empower your customers, whatever those things are, that that is really key to really any company's success. And I think you see it over and over again in, in, the, in the companies that, that are really strong. Sure. I think you make a great point that you can have that love or passion for what you're doing. It doesn't have to be that you're working for a music company just because you enjoy music. That same person could be working for... A company that sells a service, but if they're doing a job that they love, right, it's just as important as if they were working for a company that did music or sold uh, paper clips, right? You know. Well, and, and I can say, you know, for me, I certainly got excited about creating products that would allow musicians to find a part of them creatively that they hadn't been able to experience before. But I was just as excited 
when the first time uh, Line 6 was put on the Inc. 500 Mm -hmm. because it was, you know, the opportunity to build, you know, to say, hey, we're building a great company. And I was passionate about that. And the first time we were voted one of the best places to work in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. County, I was also excited about that as well because that's a passion to build a great organization, to build an organization that people are excited and and to, to work in is as big of a motivating passion for me as the music space itself. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we've been talking a lot about musicians, and one thing that musicians have to do is practice. And, and a lot takes a lot of work. Taking that kind of analogy there, looking back at your your career as a leader, was there something you had to work at to be good at that turned out to be a pretty important part of your, your own life in, in, within the organization? You know, I think that the key thing for any leader in an organization that you always have to be working at is communication. There's a lot of dimensions to that. I certainly had to develop as sort of a formal leader of the organization the ability to, you know, present information about the company, how we're doing, uh, you know, performance, that type of thing, and be able to do that in a variety of settings, whether it's in front of several hundred people in the company whether it's in front of customers and vendors at a trade show or whether it's in a um, you know small staff meeting. So getting comfortable in doing that was certainly one thing. But I would say that the thing that I had to learn more was recognizing that what seems like a lot of communication to you isn't actually a lot of communication to everybody else. <laughs> so for yeah. you know you feels like to you you've said this a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And in reality, then when you do an employee survey and you find out people don't understand something, and I sort of would look at it and say, well, how could somebody not understand this? I've, you know, I've been talking about this for the last six months or something like that. It really made me realize that you as the leader have to really overcompensate for the amount of communication that you do. And, and really it gets down to there's no such thing, I think, as too much communication, particularly when it comes to the vision and purpose of the company. Because you can get so wrapped up in all the deliverables that a company has to execute on day-to-day. We've got to get this product done. We've got to make these sales calls. You've got to get these customer support things put in place. We've got to get these vendors paid. We have to get this supply chain. You get so caught up in those things that Mm -hmm. you sometimes forget that you've got to keep reinforcing the message of why are we here? What are we trying to accomplish as a company? And what is it that our customers are going to find in value about the things that we're doing? And even though you as the leader might be thinking about that all the time, actually saying it over and over again, verbalizing it over and over again, and using every opportunity, written, spoken, electronic communication to reinforce that message is something that I just don't think any of us, well, I just think we we tend to underestimate it how often you need to do that. So Mm -hmm. that's definitely an area, Chris, where I felt kind of coming into it, I really had to sort of build those chops up was that ability to communicate that vision. The other thing I would say, Chris, that I had to learn through the process was recognizing that you have many different audiences in a company. And what might be compelling for you as an employee while you're coming to work might be really different from somebody else. And so what might be compelling to me, we talked earlier about being passionate about 
building a great business. There might be, for example, I can get really excited about how to build a great business. You, on the other hand, that might not be something that is super exciting to you. That may not be why you're coming to work. So I, as a leader, have to be able to tap into what is it that's motivating you, Chris? What is it that makes you excited to want to come to work every day? And make sure that I'm thinking about and valuing those things in my communications as much as I, I am the things that, that I'm particularly personally passionate about. Oh, that's a great answer. Well, before we run out of time, I, I want to make sure we asked a listener favorite question. So what are you reading right now? <laughs> I kind of have ADD when it comes to reading. So uh, I sort of have... Well, you're better than me. I have ADD when it comes to everything. So, <laughs> so, so I have several things in the queue, but I'd say a couple of things that, that are sort of in the works right now. I just finished reading a book by Kevin Starr about the history of California, uh, which was a real interesting book. Interestingly enough, having been a student growing up and going to California schools and mm-hmm. learning about California history and the missions and all that, right. I actually found myself in my middle age not having a real good understanding of what really was the history of California mm-hmm. and how did we go from being a part of a different country and you know how, how are these divides that we still talk about between the north part of the state and the southern part of the state. Those divisions go all the way back. To, a, or to an early history in the state. So I'm reading that. I'm also reading a book by uh, Barbara Tuchman called The Guns of August, which is about, it's a kind of an older book, but it's about the uh, beginning of World War One and sort of how World War One came about. The war that happened that nobody wanted. Again, another one of those things, you know, we just don't in, in our history education learn a lot about that. And you might think because of that I'm kind of a history nut. I'm actually not, but I really find it fascinating to look back we live through history today, yet when we learn history, we learn it at these little, as these little events that sort of happen, and then the next thing you know, you're in a major war, or suddenly you're a part of a new nation. In reality, when you read about these things, you realize none of these things happened in as sort of clear, defined events as they appear when you learn, when you kind of learn about them in traditional history. And so it makes me think about today the little pieces that we experience in life and, you know, sort of how are they going to look to somebody 50 years from now when there's a big event that describes what happened in the financial crisis or, mm-hmm. or you know, the war on terror or any of those kinds of things. It's much more interesting to look at it through the lens of history doesn't happen in big events. It typically happens in very small things. And I was interested in learning what those small things were. Yeah, uh, and usually, these other books. usually we remember those things that were sort of the tip of the iceberg, right? Yeah. But there was something that created that iceberg first. Correct. All these little events that, that really may go into something. Well, we're getting here to the end, so if anyone's interested in uh, reaching out to you or finding out more about you, what's the best way to do that? The best way is to check out my LinkedIn, go on Google, put in Mike and Minch, M-U-E-N-C-H, and uh, do a search. It'll show up on LinkedIn, and all my contact information is there. Mike Mitch was my guest today. I really appreciate having you on the Talent Talk radio show. Hopefully you can come back and see us again sometime soon. Great. Chris, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. So up next, Mike Vo will be on the show after a quick commercial break.
Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. And we're back. You know, the Talent Talk radio show is brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping you with your people-related decisions by providing access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and much more. And just today it was announced that People G2 found themselves on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest-growing companies. Not a bad place to be. Learn more about People G2 and what's happening with their exciting growth. Please visit them online at www.peopleg2.com. That's peopleg2.com. Or you can follow them on Facebook. And their Twitter handle is, of course, at PeopleG2. That's PeopleG2, the talent people. And now back to our talented host, Chris Dyer. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast uh, of this show or listen to past shows by visiting octalkradio.net and clicking on the show's tab and clicking on Talent Talk. In the short time the show has existed, we've already amassed a huge following on iTunes, so thank you, all of you, for listening. My next guest is Mike Vo. Uh, don't forget to tweet him your live questions. Uh, maybe we'll give a prize to someone who can stump him. Mike, uh, my producer, is looking out for those now. Just do your tweet to at PeopleG2 and hashtag. If you don't know what a hashtag is, you may not be tweeting, but just in case, it's that little number sign. To uh, hashtag Talent Talk. And uh, without further ado, Mike, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you. So tell us about yourself and your company, Miss Professional Nail. Well, I am the president of Miss Professional Nail. We uh, manufacture fingernail products, all based here in Southern California. We make fingernail polish, treatments, and we also do private label for cosmetic and beauty products. Great. So I noticed you had a degree in political science and a, like a law degree. 
So how did you end up starting this business, going from that to this? I'm probably one of the very rare breeds of lawyers in the beauty business. Um, <laughs> actually, I grew up in it. Uh, my folks started the business. But I'm a lawyer by trade and uh, went to college, law school, practiced for a number of years, and then rejoined the family business about four years ago. So how has your time as an attorney and now an entrepreneur influenced the type of leader you are today? I would say that I'm more structured than probably most other entrepreneurs, more methodical. Based on my legal training, I'm looking at things from a different angle. We also look at regulatory, what we can and cannot do. So sometimes more risk-adverse than most other entrepreneurs, but I, I've changed over the years. So you started Miss Professional Nail in 2009, is that Right. Uh, well, I joined the you family jo- oh, business. You joined in 2009. The, uh, the company was started by my parents back in 1984. Okay, so it's been going for quite a while. So yeah. you joined in 2009. Certainly, it seems like you've had quite a bit of growth since since that time. You know, most people know that starting a company is hard work. It's long hours. And so when you came in, you may have been wearing lots of different hats and really trying to drive that growth. But as that company is kind of going through that growth. How do you expect to change? You know, so if you if you reach some of your goals, if you get to that point where maybe you've doubled your sales, you've tripled your sales, how do you expect to change so that you can be the right leader for the organization? You know, what I've experienced that any time there's growth, there's a requirement to bring in good employees. Um, I do wear a lot of hats right now, and I try to delegate as much as possible. And as we continue to grow, I will delegate more and really build a solid team. I think that's where the foundation of our company is. Is uh, starts with me and then the folks that I surround myself with. Mm-hmm. So, as a CEO now, who's who or what has had the greatest impact uh, on your leadership development? Uh, leadership development, I actually would say my mother. She she started the business in '84 with my father, and she has a style of mentoring where you know, she lets me explore, learn. A lot of times, I I, I think that us as CEOs or presidents of company. We don't have good mentors all, all the time, uh, but I've been very fortunate to have my mother uh, fill that role. You know, you're not the first person on the show to say their mother, and I think for a lot of people that may come as a surprise that they wouldn't put uh, mothers at, automatically in the category of being a mentor or someone influenced you in a leadership style. But when someone says it, it absolutely makes sense because it's kind of the first person really there to mold you, to guide you, to teach you right from wrong. But in your case even to mentor you in the business and to, to help you find your way. that That's incredible. You know, is there a, a specific skill or technique that you think contributes to your role um, that you've had to maybe work on over time? And, and how did you get there? One of the biggest skills I've had to, to really tackle is delegating. Uh, I know as, as heads of companies, oftentimes we like to do everything. We, we like to think that uh, we're Superman or Superwoman. Delegating is something I've learned uh, to give to my employees, and it allows me to do what I do best, is bring in more business. So that, that's uh, an important skill for, for us leaders. Well, there's a kind of a fan-favorite question that we've been asking people the last two shows now, and that is, what books are you reading right now? Uh, one that I just recently finished is uh, Shake the World, and it talks about stories about people who have made changes or differences by thinking differently or doing mm-hmm. something differently. Do you remember any examples from the book? You know, to be quite put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, put me on the spot there. Uh, it was just stories of, of, of leaders, present-day leaders, who, who have done things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying, so, you know, how can I apply some of that, be a little more 
you know, risk-taking and think differently and become creative. Well, speaking of creativity, uh, one of the fascinating things that I like to kind of dive into with people is how do they really deal with their creative process? You know, how do they brainstorm effectively with their team and how do they get other people to think creatively to find the right solution? Can you maybe talk about that and what you do in your company? In terms of our internal working, so I have meetings with all of my employees and I'll give them a project that we're about to start and ask them to come up with solutions. I, I provide the parameters, but I let them come up with the decisions on how we should approach a project like in the case of the nail polish, the packaging, the colors, color names, themes. Uh, I let the team handle that, and I really just support them, you know, bring them back in where we're going off on a tangent. In terms of how we work with our customers, I like to bring the clients into the creative process. So we work with them side by side and literally mixing, formulating colors. They're invited into our offices. We ask them what you're looking for. And then a lot of times, we'll let them play with it. So the creativity for us is is different than probably most other industries because we can uh, permit our customers to be a part of the process. Well, and your product, too, is a part of helping people feel creative and unique and special by the way in which they're expressing themselves. Right. Have you had to deal with any any sort of creative problems, maybe more logistical issues within the business that maybe creativity was... Maybe not so directly with colors and, and something that is naturally creative, but maybe how to overcome problems. Logistics. You mentioned logistics. We have that all the time because we do so much in terms of private labeling. So when things are coming in not on schedule, you know, I have to convene my, my team from our production manager to our logistics folks and say, if we were to schedule this around, you, know, you guys throw me some proposals. I, I, I never tell people this is what exactly I need from them. But these are the challenges. These are the deadlines. This is what the client wants. So provide me with proposals. And that's one thing I've been very firm with all of our employees. If you come to me with a question, an issue, more than likely I also want you to have a proposal on how we can resolve that because there's no point just complaining to me because then I'm not, I'm not really benefiting them. Mm-hmm. I, I want to help guide them in their uh, analytical process. Well, and it sounds like you're in a way repeating what your mom did for you and kind of being that mentor. So how do you encourage people, though, to really develop their own talent uh, in the work that they're doing for you? Oftentimes, letting them run with creativity, trial and error. I, I think there's there's no substitute for trial and error. I can give a 100 different stories, examples to my employees, but until you've gone through it, you really don't know what works and what doesn't work. So I, I encourage them, give it a shot. If it doesn't work, give it another shot. And then if you really need my assistance at that point, I will step in. Can you give us an example of maybe when you've let someone kind of do that trial and error or run through it? Production scheduling. Mm-hmm. When we have multiple projects that are overlapping, a lot of times they're looking for me to give them a, a straight answer. I said, now, well, let's run the production and see what happens. And I tell them that, Production schedule is not just running the, the machines. You're looking at when things are coming in, when delivery is, how much we can hold in terms of floor space. So sometimes they come to me and say, oops, we have no more floor space. So, okay, now what do we do about it? So it's, it's that encouragement of letting them make those mistakes but saying it's okay because that is a natural part of the business cycle. 
So, you know, now that you've you've been involved uh, in the business since 2009, and it's also a family business, what advice might you have for our listeners who are looking to start a company or to become the head of part of a company? What, what are some of the things that you might, you know, advise someone who's, who's looking into doing that based on what's worked well for you or maybe what hasn't worked well for you? A couple of things. First is be flexible and open-minded. A lot of folks are very surprised when they find out that uh, I'm actually a lawyer by, by training in the beauty world. So whatever education, background, prior work experience you have, be flexible and be open uh, to be a good entrepreneur. Second is you have to take risk. Um, risk is inherent in being an entrepreneur, and that's why there are a few of us around who can do what we do successfully, is that we're willing to take risk, calculated risk, though, and learn from our mistakes and move forward. And uh, probably the third thing is really is hard work. A lot of hours, a lot of, you know, picking yourself off the ground when things don't work out and say, you know what, I'll try it a different way. I think that's a, a challenge for many of us who are afraid of failure. So do you think that loving what you do really helps drive success? Absolutely. When you work the long hours, you have to love it because if you look at you know, the bottom line profits in the day, there will be, be days when you doubt, like, you know, I'm not getting paid enough. The company's just not big enough. Whatever it is, if you're just looking at the dollars and cents, it's not, it'll never be enough because once you reach, say, the 1 million, the 10 million, the 30 million mark, it's never enough. So I, I really do believe that loving what you do is critical in growing a business and uh, promoting uh, within the culture of, the, of uh, your business environment. Because your, your people will see it. If you love it. So you've talked a lot about the people you have involved in your organization. What's kind of your biggest challenge in recruiting top talent when it's time to actually hire some people? Some of the, in terms of the talent, you know, here in Southern California, one of the challenges, getting people to drive. It is an absolute nightmare. Uh, but beyond the, the commuting issues, it's getting people to believe that if I join a you know a smaller company, it'll go to something big. Some sometimes we're so accustomed to working with big large corporations, people don't want to make that switch. But I always tell folks, you work with me, I will make you better, I will make you faster, and you will be more successful than I will ever be. And I think that's a big part. So sort of that promise of of development. Uh, and men mentoring, really, kind of right. getting back into that. Well, and those are all the, kind of the good things, but sometimes we also have difficulties in our, our work and our we make mistakes. We have a, kind of painful experiences, let's say. Have you had one of those that maybe you could relate back to our listeners? Of, you know, a difficult time you had in, in, in something you were doing and how that really maybe impacted and affected you into the type of leader and how you really run your company now? Part of it, I think one of the most painful experiences uh, was bringing on too many employees. You know, that's that whole risk side, calculated risk. So bringing on too many employees and miscalculating the market or the number of projects coming in and then having to lay off some of the folks that you really you know, mentored and made some promises of, I will, I will grow you, I will make you better. So that's been a painful experience. But uh, I moved beyond a lot of those and learned that, you know, calculated risk, management, human resources is one of the most critical part of uh, 
properly growing a business. So do you think you know, human resources is the most critical role within a company when they're growing? Absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. It's human resources because I've had many nights where I'm there at the office till midnight, and the one thing I say to myself is if I had the right people, I would be two times as big, ten times as big, whatever it is. And when when I look at it from that, that standpoint, it's not a production capacity, but do I have the right people to grow my business? So this is human resources in the sense of helping you find great talent, helping you find the right people to be in your organization. Right. And, and sometimes for organizations, the human resources person is also helping them avoid risk, helping them avoid... Uh, you know, potential pitfalls and making sure you're compliant, that you're, you know, your your staff is the right people at the right time uh, in the organization. But maybe kind of stepping outside of human resources, is there another job or another person that you think is just absolutely critical within maybe, maybe your organization, but organizations in general, that you think it really has to be the right hire or it can be so detrimental to companies? I can't think of an actual role or position, but I'll tell you the type of person that's that's critical to grow mm-hmm. is someone who's willing to tell you no. Mm-hmm. You know, as as presidents or CEOs, it's hard to take a no from a colleague. And I don't call them subordinates, but from a colleague, for you to say no to your your boss, you really have to be ready to challenge his or her strategy and say, you know what, I I'm, I'm I hear what you say. But I think there's there's a better approach. Mm-hmm. So it's not just no; it's it's an informed no. It's a you know I don't think you're quite right, and here's why. Right. And I think it, you're right. Th- that kind of person is invaluable in an organization. All there are all kinds of people who can say no, who can be critical, right. who can tear things down. But to say no because I have this idea, or because I learned this, or this is what I think, and then to give an alternative, right. those people are, you know, very, very successful in companies and very sought after. Right. And, it, it, you know, that stems from, from the upper echelon of management to, you know, just the, the person who does everyday labor. Because I tell our folks that if you find a better way of doing something, tell me. Because odds are you know the system and the process better than I do sitting at my desk. I'm not there all day. Mm-hmm. So that's why I always appreciate folks who... No, not you know that has to be direct. No, but hey, there's a better way to do this, and mm-hmm. that is that's invaluable to to anyone in management. In management, right? So uh, I'm not sure if you've ever read the book Outliers, but it's kind of a sort of famous book now by uh, Malcolm Caldwell, and it really the whole premise of the book is that anyone can become an expert in anything as long as they put in sort of this magic 10,000 hours of practice. Tell me, you know, just, I'm not sure if you read the book or not, but just based on that premise, you know, would you agree? Not really. To be candid, you know, if you put in 10,000 hours or whatever it is, 20,000 hours, it doesn't make you an expert. There's a combination of factors from your capacity, yeah, you know your intellectual capacity to comprehend things, to process information, your desire to work hard. I mean, the fact that you're in the office 80 hours a week doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you know, producing work product at 80 hours a week. So it's not just sheer hours, but it's a it's a love for what you do, the intellectual capacity, and the drive. 
Mm-hmm. So maybe you could give me a, and the rest of the listeners a, a bit more of an explanation about Miss Professional now. I mean, you said it was sort of in the beauty industry. What are some of the exact things you're doing? What are the actual products you're selling? Maybe you can kind of give sure. us a better picture of that. We, we, we make a, a professional uh, line of nail products from nail polish to treatment. So say, for example, your wife, mother, daughter goes into a, a nail salon. Uh, many of the products that are used in nail salons, we manufacture. We also will do private label, meaning if you wanted your own brand of nail polish, nail polish remover, we'll make it for you. And what we're also doing is expanding our services to beauty and cosmetic contract manufacturing. So for some of the large retail establishments out there, we actually make many of the products that are in their stores. And other particular products that are more popular or really kind of hitting a you know, good buzz right now? You know what? Nail polish is a huge thing. So in uh, uh, economic recession, down cycles, when uh, folks want to feel... You know, they want to pamper themselves. Nail polish is an affordable luxury. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen that worldwide. We've seen an uptick in uh, nail polish uh, consumption. Now, Mike is also a uh, board member with me on the Working Wardrobes organization. We uh, let them have them uh, as a sponsor. They have their commercials here on the Talent Talk radio show. And uh, I just wondered, uh, and we've had Jerry Rosen, the founder, on the, uh, the, our very first radio show, what uh, about the organization really drew you to that? And, and, you know, why are you there working as a board member with, with me sure. and Jerry? We initially got started with working wardrobes by donating our nail polish. We, we wanted to instill confidence in the, in the ladies who were going out on job interviews. So we started off by donating our nail polish, and I saw the good work that the organization does, uh, was invited on. And, and to me, we want, I want to give back to the community. But it's more empowering those, not necessarily just you know the, the providing of financial assistance. But how do we empower you? How, how do we help you get back on your feet? And that's what really solidified my decision to join the board at, at Working Wardrobe. I, I see they've transformed lives, just like uh, the, their slogan. Yeah, they do a remarkable job with uh, really helping people, women who are victims of domestic violence, you have people coming out of rehabilitation programs. And more recently, um, even veterans coming in off of the front lines and into the private sector. Right. So we have quite a, a few uh, different aspects of, of our, our community, our neighborhood, where we can really make a, a difference. So right. I highly encourage anyone who's interested in donating clothes, donating their time, uh, or getting involved, uh, or even donating money. Uh, any and all of those things are, are really helpful. Uh, you can always find workingwardrobes.org uh, if you're interested. Well, uh, last question of the day here is uh, if people are interested in finding out more about you and Miss Professional Nail, uh, how do they reach you? Well, we, our website is www.misspn.com, and you can also email me. Um, I'll make an effort to respond to all emails at mvo at misspn.com, and miss is M-I-S-S. Uh, our office number is 310 538-5975. Well, great. Uh, I really appreciate you ha- being on the show today, Mike. It was a pleasure. Um, that's about all the time that we have. I really want to, again, thank Mike Lowe for being on the show, as well as Mike Minch. Uh, it was a, a really fun show today. Please make sure you tune in next week at the same time, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, for Talent Talk, brought to you by People G2. 
Next week, you can hear Terry Hartshorn, I hope I'm saying that correctly, and Nancy Hoops uh, with their thoughts on talent. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk, the only show that explores the ideas behind developing, finding, and keeping good talent in an organization. Brought to you by People G2.